Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For February, we're looking on and focusing on becoming a change maker. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Shonda Ja, who is an anti-oppression consultant, author, speaker, teacher, founder, and former executive director of the Oakland Peace Center, which is a collective of 40 organizations working to create equity, access, and dignity as the means of creating peace in Oakland and the Bay Area. Let's get into the interview. In today's world of protests, economic uncertainty, and heightened awareness around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the drive for change has never been stronger. People of all walks of life are looking for a different and better future, but many do not know how to move forward to become the change makers they want to be. Shonda Ja, who is an ordained minister and the author of several books, continuously examines the transformation of the spirit and what it takes to heal communities. She has worked with a number of organizations, training them how to interact differently in the world and with others outside their usual relational sphere. Ms. Jike's career has been marked by public policy work during her time with Congressman Thomas C. Sawyer from Akron, Ohio. Along with her educational background, career experience, and continuous drive to learn more, Shonda is known for her big heart. Welcome, Shonda. Thanks so much. It is really good to be with you today. Yes, thank you so much for your time and um, for uh, joining me in this interesting discussion and these, um, uh, I guess I'll just call them, uh, uh, no pun intended, but changing times for change makers. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So before we get in the interview, I always uh, like to find out a little bit of uh, personal um, stuff about the person that I'm interviewing. Um, So I'd love to know how you got started as an anti-oppression consultant. Yeah, it actually emerged out of 25 years of community organizing experience and doing anti-racism work for my denomination. Uh, So it was always what we in Oakland would refer to as a side hustle uh, while I was doing my organizing and uh, nonprofit work. And after the murder of George Floyd, some of my colleagues and friends said to me, hey, it is time to hand over the Oakland Peace Center. We need you focusing on what your real passion is, what you're actually good at, uh, which <laughs> is helping helping folks talk about race, race equity, um, and the policies, practices, and procedures that create sustainable, equitable practices in the workplace and in our social movements. So... That shift happened, like I said, right right around the middle of late 2020. Um, but for years before that, I had been writing about, uh, organizing around, and offering trainings on specifically racial justice and anti-racism, which I see as two similar, although distinct things. And so the shift has been really fun into... Uh, what some people call diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting, what I think is actually anti-oppression consulting, 
where we're trying to figure out together how to do community organizing within our companies, within our universities, within our nonprofits, whatever our workplace is. Because really, at its heart, embedding those systemic changes requires a certain level of community organizing. Uh, A list of protocols isn't going to do it. It's about changing both the policies and the culture of the organization. And that's going to require more than one person writing a bunch of stuff down for everybody else. Yes. um, I, you know, um, yeah, there's so many things uh, going on out there. And I think kind of just to um, uh, start the discussion and set the change, and this is just um, something from my personal observation in the, um, you know, the years that I have uh, been around now uh, coming um, for a number of decades, I won't age myself, but <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a number of decades. But what I have seen just from a, a personal standpoint of just um, looking out in society and then also my personal experiences is I feel that uh, racism and oppression uh, has changed. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of, um, you know, I, I think uh, when... Uh, whenever you hear the word racism, or I will say most people, they're thinking of these blatant things that are happening. Um, you know, they think back to, uh, you know, um, uh, the civil rights movement, um, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, um, you know, they they remember the, the um, uh, what is it, the uh, like TV reports and things that were going on during that time. But I think now racism is, you know, maybe not uh, you know, there are, of course, places of that that still happen. But how would you say that racism and oppression has changed from um, what I would say, like the the poster image that we all have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways it hasn't, in some ways it hasn't. It has, there has been an insidious creep, right? So on the one hand, uh, I think a lot of us have narratives about the world has gotten better, things have improved, things are less dangerous. Um, But if you go back and look at, you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which is one of the most beloved speeches by people across the political spectrum, you know, the part we focus on is the very end, the I have a dream that uh, one day my children will not be judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. But in that speech, he's talking about Uh, job hiring and wealth inequities between black and white folks. He's talking about police brutality. He names it really explicitly. He talks about um, the lack of reparations, the way that, in fact, he says this country uh, owes a check, has a debt, has a financial debt to the black community, and it is overdue, right? Um, And so all of those things continue to be real issues in our community. And also, one of the things that I think the civil rights movement, what what we often call the civil rights movement, but the people who were involved in it called it the U.S. Freedom Movement, what a lot of those folks were working on in particular was voting rights. And the fact of the matter is uh, the Supreme Court did not reinstate the Voting Rights Act of 1964 when they had the opportunity to about five years ago, maybe eight years ago. Um, And they have not 
enthusiastically supported the campaigns in North Carolina and Texas to advocate for protecting Black and Latino voting rights. And I think most of us are aware of the increase in anti-Asian violence. Uh, and when we talk about police brutality and when also when we talk about wealth inequity, indigenous people uh, it continue to experience vast uh, differences in their in their access and their opportunities and in the likelihood of experiencing harm. So it's interesting because on the one hand, we talk about how much better things have gotten. And on the other hand, a lot of the things that people were fighting for during the U.S. freedom movement are things that are still issues today. Um, but I think things have been removed a little at a time. You know, they we often use that analogy of a frog boiling in a mm -hmm. pot of water. If you put him in boiling water, he jumps out. But if you warm the temperature a little at a time, he doesn't. Uh, and while scientifically that's not actually true, it's a really good metaphor uh, for the situation we find ourselves in uh, where we have a growing tolerance for a removal of rights when they happen a little bit at a time. So um, the landscape in which we're doing this work is in some ways different and in a lot of ways has reverted to not all that different uh, than what our uh, forefathers, our foremothers, our ancestors were fighting for, uh, you know, over 50, what, 60 years ago now. Yes. And, you know, you bring up a really good point that it seems that there's, um, you know, I, I, I guess if I were going to name it, there is more of a um, uh, there's a it's a there's a technicality now to the to the racism and now the the long term effects of what happened for years are um, uh, you know, being kind of highlighted within the system. So and I think during this um uh, this experience of the pandemic, I think a mm -hmm. lot of uh, people really got the or or communities or America, I guess, or the world, I guess, because I'll even say for mm -hmm. some of the uh, people that that I talk are outside of the U.S., they are in shock of what they perceive the uh, United States to be, and then what it really is coming out to be based off of all these um, different stories and things that are coming. Um, you know, sure. uh, becoming, um, you know, getting uncovered. So, you know, how I think, you know, the question I have is like, how are communities in trouble in America and, um, you know, and, and their perception in the world because of this? Yeah, well, and the interesting thing is, we're also part of a global trend, right? Um, I think, I'm I'm super aware of this. My family's from India, and I've been watching uh, the growing trend of Hindu nationalism there, and the ways that um, Dalits, uh, people from oppressed castes, and Muslims are uh, experiencing a great deal of harm at the hands of their government. Um, there, you know, the Philippines. There are all sorts of countries. We finally uh, got really good news in Brazil. The Bo Bolsonaro regime was overturned, but people kept talking about him as the Trump of Brazil. They were best friends. They had very similar <laughs> worldviews and, uh, and agendas. Um, and so the thing that's 
frustrating is the ways in which there is, you know, there's an increase in, um, in, in neo-Nazis and uh, anti-Semitism in Europe that has been slowly creeping up for the past decade, maybe even 15, 20 years. Um, and uh, when you look at like Brexit and the fact that in Britain, uh, I, I keep thinking about when Britain voted in favor of Brexit, it was actually because of the concern that Polish people were coming into Britain and taking away good British jobs. But the day after Brexit passed, um, a South Asian man got beaten almost to death on a, a, a subway in London. And the guy who was beating him up said, yeah, now we're coming for you because Brexit means we're going to get rid of all these brown people. Right. So the the thing that's kind of troubling is the ways in which that uh, is happening all over the world. So while, yes, I think people are being disabused of their understandings of the United States, which used to be perceived as uh, the first modern democracy in the world, and actually is no longer considered that because there was a period where it stopped being considered in the global arena to actually be a democracy. I don't think a lot of people know about that, um, but it means the start button restarted in 2021. Um, so we are actually no longer the oldest modern democracy in the world. And, and it's part of a trend right all over um all over the world i mm -hmm. do want to say there's some good news wrapped up there's i don't think this is cause for despair but i do want to kind of at least stop there because i know that was the question you were asking about yes no it's you know you you bring up <laughs> the thing you know for me um that's been uh, kind of uh, startling, but it's not necessarily shocking. But I guess it, it 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 saddens me a little bit because, you know, this this revolt against, um, uh, I guess you would say, um, brown brown people. Um, but it's it's the thing to me that always like sparks me is that the it's majority of the people on the earth are brown. <laughs> you know, um, so I just, you know, I, I, my thing is how how can other people who are are not brown, but I, you know, I, you know, for me, I have to be honest. I've always thought of a race as arbitrary, right? Because it, it really mm -hmm. is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it is a, um, you know, we can go back to the history of, you know, um, you know, of the the wealthy um, landowners and things like that that had to make yeah. like extinctions because it's, you know, when it boils down to everything, as they say, you know, all the root of evil is the love of money, right? So it came mm -hmm. down to money and this is how we got started in this, um, yeah. you know, crazy trap. Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's always very disturbing to me that, um, you know, so many people have attached to this idea of, um, you know, separation through, you know, the social construct called race. And so mm -hmm. how, how can, how can people learn, I guess, how, how do we get people to learn to see through other people's eyes that, you know, if I am a black person, I can see through a white person's eyes, or I can see through an Asian person's eyes, or if I'm Asian, I can see through a black person's eyes or a white person's eyes. And I'm not, 
you know, um, uh, I'm able just to see a person as a person. I know it's a dreamy statement that I'm saying, <laughs> but how, how can we, how can we teach people this? You know, it's an interesting question. That was actually what my second book was all about, was helping us to get a glimpse into other people's experiences across all sorts of different types of racial diversity in the U.S. But I love that you started out with, you know, because race is a construct and you're, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And I think we often forget that, you know, uh, as I think I heard Ibram Kendi say this on a podcast long before people knew that name, um, where he said, you know, the first race that was constructed was white because before the 1600s, that wasn't a thing, right? It was, you know, you were Greek or you were Norse or you were French if you happen to be what we now call white. Um, and those distinctions really mattered. Um and so the first race that needed to be constructed in order for race to function the way it does today was whiteness, which erases all sorts of cultural distinctions. And you're totally right. It was done so that people with all the wealth, who were generally uh, white, could keep poor white folks uh separated from poor people of color, going all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, where white indentured servants and black enslaved people came together and rose up against uh, the plantation owners. So yeah, you're 100% right about that. And here's where I do think there is some great news. Um, there is Ian Haney Lopez wrote a book a few years back called, I believe it's called Turn Left, where he talked about research that he's done on progressive messaging. Because the thing, part of why we are where we are is because people have been very effective at um, leveraging fear, right? Fear is a very effective uh, tool to use in messaging. So you should be afraid of these people. These people are dangerous. These people aren't like you. They are a threat. Um, that has worked really, really well for uh, what I would call proto-fascist folks, right? People mm -hmm. who want to eliminate democracy and have have power dictated by a very small group of people with a whole bunch of control about our, our lives, our bodies, all of that. But the great news... Uh, that Ian Haney Lopez's research shows is most people are even more compelled by messaging that says, we see you, you are dealing with hard things. Those folks who have all the power, they want to keep us divided, but we know that you want a world where everyone is thriving, where poor folks are thriving, where people of color are thriving, where queer folks are thriving. And here's how we can do it together. Um, and that's where you plug in. Here's the policy strategy we'd like to move forward. Here's the way you can get involved in this campaign. That kind of messaging works because it turns out the vast majority of people do want to be part of the group of decent, good human beings who have each other's backs. So it's interesting because you can probably tell I'm neither Democrat nor Republican at this point, mm -hmm. uh, because the Democratic messaging has consistently said, don't talk about gay people, don't talk about black people, You'll don't talk about immigrants, you'll scare away the white folks. And it turns out 
that that strategy is also driven by fear, not rational fear, because it turns out the messaging that is most effective isn't fear driven and it isn't treating people like they are the worst parts of themselves, but saying, we see you, we know the world that you want, we want it too. Here's what's keeping us from achieving that. And here's what we can do about it together. Um, I find that incredibly encouraging because I think the media so often focuses on the stories about uh, the ways that people are pitted against each other, that we aren't being given a realistic perspective of how much people actually do try to show up for each other. You know, um, a great example is in the wake of, say, Hurricane Katrina. 85% of the media stories, and that's a made-up statistic, but a very large percentage, because uh, I don't remember the exact percentage. So a very large percentage, I want to say it was 85% of the media coverage was about the ways in which people were doing harm, were experiencing harm, were harming each other. But the reality was 85% of the things that were actually happening on the ground were people taking care of each other, showing up for each other, trying to take each other in, trying to provide food when people didn't have it, rescuing elders, rescuing people across racial differences. But the narratives we get from the media reinforce this narrative that we are opposed to each other, that we are afraid of each other, when in fact... That's not true, but our sense is that that's how everybody else feels, because that's the only story we get. I find this to be really good news, because I suspect most of the folks who are listening to your show really want to make the world a more inclusive and welcoming and safe place for everybody. And it turns out that you're not alone in feeling that way. It turns out the vast majority of us feel that way. It's just that the media doesn't make any money off of telling that story. And we've been given this version of this country that is scary, that is divided, that hates each other, that is trying to do each other harm or has to protect themselves from each other. Not completely a true narrative and a very toxic one as well. So I think the good news is we've got a different story we can tell. We've got a different story that's actually true. And that can be amazing building blocks for all sorts of things in our communities. Yes. And you know what I was thinking as you were talking is um, is that people are wounded. That's what it was, yeah. you know, that's what oh, I kept, yeah. you know, and that's what, you know, was coming into my mind that there's so many wounds and, you know, in all the wounds, what would you say is the biggest wound that, um, and I know it's hard to speak for everyone, but what would you say is the biggest wound that most people need to heal um, during these times? Mm. <laughs> I am going to apologize for this because it's probably not um, not the most, well, I'm not going to say it's not the most tangible answer, but it's maybe not the most individual specific answer. I honestly think it's the wound of exploitation, and that's mm. a wound that's externally created. Um, and part of the reason I'm really passionate about this one right now is... So I work with a lot of folks uh, from a lot of different backgrounds, right? I'm working with people from all sorts of racial backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, uh, people from the disability community, people who are poor, people who are middle class. And the pandemic has really kind of broken open uh, 
in my observation, how fatigued we all are. And I really do think the root cause of that isn't a lack of self-care. It's the fact that we live in a society that it turns out could function just as well if people worked four hours a day on average, but where we have to work 10 and 12 hours a day because the people with all of the power want to make sure that we know who we need to rely on in order to survive. And what that means is our labor's being exploited and not even for greater production, just to keep us tired. Um, and I think some of the most interesting work I've been seeing go on recently in anti-racism spaces is talking about how rest is resistance. Uh, we live in we live in a society that's oriented around an extraction economy. I learned that term from an organization called Movement Generation. And um, what they mean by that is we live in a society that's trying to extract uh, resources from the earth, extract um, resources from other countries through militarism, extract resources from people like us through our labor. Um, we live in this extraction economy where everything is being pulled out of the earth, out of us, out of other countries. Um, and what we really are all longing for is what they call a generative or living economy where the earth is cared for, where the people are cared for, where our labor is valued and honored instead of being exploited, and where we're only working as much as we need to in order to maintain a healthy, thriving existence, which is considerably less work than we currently have to do in order to keep a roof over our heads in order to pay medical bills. So in some ways, I think that the most significant wound, which creates so much of the so many of the other wounds, is exploitation. I gotta be honest, I am, and it is weird to say this, but after a life, an adult lifetime of being low income, working in the nonprofit world, working in community organizing, I am middle class for the for the first time in my adult life. And a lot of other problems I dealt with, loneliness, isolation, depression, not that depression is not a medical condition, but a lot of the things I dealt with uh, when I was poor, when I was struggling, when I was trying to patch together three or four jobs in order to stay housed, a lot of those problems went away once I had enough money. Um, and so I think we underestimate how many of the challenges we face are caused by lack of economic security. And I think that the healing of that would create space for a lot of other healing, less domestic violence, less addiction, all sorts of things get addressed as people become more economically secure. Yes. You know, that is, uh, you know, beautifully said. I, you know, I never thought about the wound of exploitation, but, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you were mentioning it and I started to think about, especially during this time of the pandemic and how people got to work from home, got yeah. to spend more time with their families, yeah. got to assess, you know, what they, what they want in their life, whether that meant, you know, separating from a spouse, whether that meant, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to have more children, whether that mm -hmm. meant, you know, travel or whatever. Um, yeah. People really got some really serious reflection time and, you know, um, in a way, it was 
from the economics of everyone that is in charge, it was kind of detrimental and led to this like movement of like, we need change because we had all been, um, I guess, kind of uh, working zombies. Right. Yeah. We had been resigned to it. Yeah. We didn't know there was Mm -hmm. any other way to be. Yeah. And so when we finally got to stop and wake up, we're like, what are we doing? (laughs) And, you know, and, it, and, you know, the thing that amazed me, because I brought this up to a friend of mine, I said, isn't it amazing that, like, the world was able just to turn off, like, you just press a button? Yeah. I said, isn't that strange? Like, I, yeah. I in a way, it scared me. I was like, I was like, it's like we are in the machine and all anybody had to do was press a button and everything stopped. And it's, yep. it's, it's, in a, that is like, that's like I'm still stunned like that we could have everything stop across the entire globe and yes. you know and then also the other thing that I'm amazed this is kind of a tangent but I was also amazed that we were able to get a vaccine so fast when we have all these other problems and diseases and we cannot yes. solve them um, and they've been going on for years but when we had to face something because of the fact that we could not move around as we wanted could not the you know uh, people were not making the money that they were used to we were able to fix a problem like really quickly mm-hmm. so so then that made me like also like be like what the heck are we doing here because if we can fix a problem um that we needed to fix in order for us to continue and there's so many problems like that that we need to fix then that means we can fix other problems quickly too it's just if we choose to focus on them or not and yeah, I you know completely and, agree and, with that. and yeah and you know and so that is what i saw during this whole um pandemic experience from you know an external and even an interpersonal um uh, time because you know like a lot of people i spent a lot of time reflecting on what the heck i want my life to look like as well yes <laughs> and so you know so this has you know been the you know um i guess you could say the the starting of the the kindling or the you know the wood that has started this fire of change and people who i think never thought about change making before yes i and completely so, agree yes and so you know um, in this, you know, uh, I guess what the the barrier I think for a lot of people is, you know, they they want change, but they don't yeah. know how to become a change maker. So, yeah. if you were going to give somebody like, um, you can just get me a few steps of like, how can somebody start to become a change maker when they now have this new fire in them that they see. Um, there's these things out here that are affecting them and other people and they know it could be different and better. It's actually a super fun question for me because that's what my whole third book was about was um, it's called Transforming Communities, How People Like You Are Healing Their Neighborhoods. Um, And it really is a collection of stories from, you know, folks I've, I've worked with or learned from over, like I said, 25 years of organizing now. And It is how regular folks, when they come together and orient themselves towards what do we want this community to be, not just what's wrong with it, but what do we imagine it could be, and what are the resources we have to make that possible, that um, magical things can happen. I think 
we have been conditioned to look for a superhero and the story of the superhero is actually a lie. Most of the best history, uh, the most interesting history, sometimes the worst history is only possible because a, a group of people got together to make something happen. Um, it's a numbers game rather than a superhero game. And so when you find other people that care about the same thing that you do, when you do a survey of what are the resources and tools that we have, who are the people who know people, who are the people who have access to research, who are the people who um, who know how to get food donated, you know, all sorts of gifts that we actually have in our communities that tend to get overlooked, then Really, we can make changes. The other thing that I think is really important to know is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Part of why I wrote Transforming Communities was because there are great models out there. Here's how to have a one-to-one -one conversation with your neighbors. Here's how to uh, bring together people to analyze what the uh, the assets in your community are so that you can build an effective campaign together. Here are the ways to make sure that the people impacted by injustice are at the center of your justice work. There are really solid models that are made for regular people, not people with fancy degrees, not people with tons of power and privilege that can be replicated really easily. So for me, it's about listening to the people around you, getting a sense of what they care about and um, getting together using some of the models that already exist in the world, like asset-based community development and uh, the community organizing strategy of one-to-one -one and small group conversations and, um, you know, lots of really basic restorative justice practices can all be used in local communities to make a big difference. Yes. And so, um, yeah, these are these are all great um, uh, steps and things that people can uh, start doing because there's so many people, as I've been seeing, that they're, I, I, you know, I see it online. I hear it that, you know, they want to do something. They just don't mm -hmm. know how. Um, so um, which is exciting. It's exciting to yeah, see that um, that that, uh, you know, is budding on the planet that people are uh, starting to see, like, you know, I'm not so um uh, you know, insignificant. And so um, in speaking of that is significant, I'm going to kind of uh, uh, move the conversation in a different aspect because of um, I, I love that you have, um, you know, a spiritual background. And in order to transition, I wanted to um, for people to understand uh, the importance of their ancestors, because I think mm. that, um, you know, uh, we as, you know, humans, obviously we go from babies to adults and we are learning from other humans. And, um, and there is a history in um, everyone's, uh, you know, uh, family and their lineage um, that is carried through them that, you know, that is, um, I will say kind of um, unconscious or, or you yeah. know, that people are not aware of. So can you explain to us why people should understand the importance of their ancestors and kind of how they got to where they are as, as um, people? And the reason I'm asking you this question is that I think um, it's important for people to understand who they are when it comes to change. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I love that because I really in in my anti-oppression work that I do in organizations, one of the kind of principles I function out of is 
we can't understand where we're going until we have a sense of the things in the past that created our current situations, right? Um, so part of it is knowing the broader history. But, you know, I was thinking about when we, when we were talking about, you know, exploitation, when we were talking about um, the reality check so many of us got during the pandemic about how we were being overworked. Um, that's also... Uh, the fancy term is epigenetic, right? We have in our DNA the remnants of uh, stories from people who came before us of the ways in which they were exploited. Part of why we recognized that condition in that moment is we had enough space to feel what's going on now and possibly have a sense of this has happened before. Um, and it has happened to most of our ancestors. There are markers on our DNA that are left there for several generations uh, related to the harm that our ancestors have experienced that are there in order to protect us, to make us more aware, to make us uh, more, you know, conscious of the ways in which we might be harmed in the same ways. So it's there to protect us. I actually think um, our ancestors can be resources of so much resilience and hope and encouragement. Um, I work in, and that's what led to my brand new book, which is called Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. And part of where the inspiration for that book came from is uh, Oakland, California is really rich soil for community organizing work. And over the past 10 years, I have noticed how the people I feel are engaging this work the best and who are staying healthy in the midst of doing hard work are folks who are aware of ancestral practices, stories of ancestors, rituals that invoke ancestors because they get to call on the power and the wisdom of the people who came before them and to center that as they do the work so that they know they're not alone uh, in doing the work and that they have people who came before them who faced hardships and overcame them. And so we can do the same thing. And I also learned pretty quickly that um, we also have messy ancestors uh, that we do have stories in our background, sometimes stories that were withheld from us of how our ancestors resisted injustice. We also have stories in our backgrounds that sometimes have been hidden of people who participated in injustice. And I feel like all of those stories matter because the stories of the ancestors who did harm are a good reminder to us. They can be a cautionary tale. They can help us learn what we want to do differently and how we want to contribute to change to undo the work that they did. But we also have ancestors who faced injustices, who resisted injustice, and we can call on those ancestors and remember what they went through and what they did uh, to give us inspiration, encouragement, and a sense of being um, held as part of that work. I think Facing our history also provides us with some really beautiful gifts to make us stronger for what is not always easy work, but is always good work of creating change in our communities. 
Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I love, um, that you, you dive into the ancestors and, um, it's just something I think that a lot of people, um, uh, dismiss, um, because they, they, um, you know, they may or may not know their ancestors, so they don't feel connection yeah. or people have a defensiveness. I've realized yeah. about their ancestors, like I'm not them, but, mm-hmm. you know, but they, um, but they have to realize that, you know, even though you are not them, they are part of you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, And so, um, and if we're not paying attention to them, they end up having more power in some ways. Yes. So the other thing is that I wanted to talk about and things that, you know, um, I think we are in a time of, um, you know, I, I, have a you know a, a deep um, spirituality that I continuously uh, tried to work on, and so mm. one of the things that I think a lot of people um, maybe uh, miss is that faith and how faith is tied to change making. Um, can mm-hmm. you um, explain how faith and change making are tied together? You know, it's really funny because I think sometimes people actually dismiss. Uh, faith, even though we know that, you know, the U.S. freedom movement um, happened in black churches uh, as a starting place and that um, there were allies who were, well, there were black Jewish people and there were also white Jewish people who were allies. And there were, you know, one of the people who died during Freedom Summer was the Reverend James Reeb, who was a Unitarian minister, um, that our spiritual leaders at their best and and spiritual people in general at our best have a sense of what really matters in the world and what it is worth taking risks in order to do because i really think for me the beauty of spirituality for people who recognize the world needs to be different is that most of our faith traditions across all of their diversity are aware of the fact that the world is not the world as it is, is not the way the world could be. And that it will take all of us working together to make it a more healed, more healthy world. And so I think there's something about spirituality that reminds us um, that there is something bigger than us that we're participating in. And that's true whether for us that bigger thing is you know, a cosmic force, whether it's the universe, whether it is a specific deity. um, I think there is something really powerful about knowing that we are a part of something really big and really important and having a little bit of perspective about that. I also think spirituality offers us uh, spaces to decompress, spaces where we connect with community um, that can empower and equip us to do the work we're called to do. So in the same way, I think uh, engaging our ancestors is important because it restores our souls. It restores our energy for the hard work. I think that spirituality does the same thing. It reminds us of what's possible and it reminds us also of who we really are. I think those are huge gifts uh, that spirituality can contribute to change making. Yes. And so one of the things, um, you know, uh, 
this is just my perspective, but I feel like we are in a period of um, testing. Um, do you believe that uh, in this uh, decade, or maybe it's been for a while, but we, you know, we're all busy running around like um, hamsters, um, mm-hmm. that do you believe that we are in some form of spiritual wa- warfare right now? Because it's something mm. that is commonly being brought up. You know, it's a great question. And so while I was raised in an interfaith household, I am a Christian minister. And something that many people are surprised to hear, because I am well known to be a very progressive minister, my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Revelation. It is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. It was actually intended as a word of encouragement to people who were being harmed by an oppressive empire. And the reason that uh, a couple of folks in the church fought really hard to keep it in the Bible was because they knew there were going to be oppressive empires in the future and that people were going to need words of encouragement. So often when we think about times of trial, the book of Revelation comes up in those conversations um, because it is there to say, don't worry, we know how awful it is. But in the end, good will win. You'll be okay. And your struggle is not being ignored by God. So I think part of what's interesting about um, those, those narratives about times of struggle is, depending on what community we're from, those end up showing up at different times. But you're absolutely right. This is a moment where the vast majority of the planet... Uh, is facing a time of trial. What I like to think, partly just because it motivates me to keep going, is that we're in the death throes of those oppressive empires. And when something is in its death throes, it lashes out, it does harm. Uh, you, Some people may have had a beloved pet that when it was dying, behaved in ways that it had never behaved in before, biting when it, uh, when it normally wouldn't. I think the same thing is true for empires. And we're living in uh, the end of a very brutal, very oppressive, very, as I said before, extractive empire. And so things like watching those guys march in Virginia where uh, carrying tiki torches and chanting either you will not replace us or Jews will not replace us. I like to believe that because we are doing the work we're doing, those are actually death throes um, of the empire. And so it is important for us to keep encouraged in doing good work so that um, we can stamp out the last of those death throes and bring about the world that we need. Now, when it comes to climate crisis, I think that what I just said might be a little more naive. Um, But we are going to have to figure out how to live well together in light of the fact that the climate is going to keep getting more and more complicated. Um, And I think there are opportunities for us there as well uh, to build community and practice equity and justice in new ways that will keep us alive and keep us thriving, even though corporations are much more interested in making money right now than in keeping us alive for the long term. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, that made me laugh. Sorry. Um, Yeah. So I guess if we wanted to, um, uh, sometimes I think uh, being able to visualize gives people, um, Mm because I'm a visual person, that they can understand. So can you explain to, um, to everyone what 
does an anti-oppressive community look like? Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. King often talked about a thing that he called beloved community. Um, Royce, there was a professor named Royce who actually coined the term, but Dr. King kind of popularized it. And whenever people ask me what beloved community means, I describe it as the place where everyone's needs are met and everyone's gifts are honored. And when I say everyone, I mean people, I mean plants, I mean animals, I mean the water and the land itself. Um, where those needs are met and those gifts are honored. And that may still seem very abstract, but I think um, the ways in which we can concretely contribute to that are when we change things in our workplace so that we're not just saying we're committed to diversity, but we're establishing practices and policies that Examine our hiring processes, our interview processes, to make sure that there's no implicit bias showing up in them. There's a bunch of ways to do that. Um, that we are intentionally building in practices within our workplaces where we learn how to engage in uh, engage each other across difference of opinion in ways that are respectful of culturally different ways of navigating conflict uh, because we generally live in workplaces, no matter how diverse that are driven by um, the conflict resolution style of the dominant culture, what we sometimes call uh, white culture. Uh, when we start to do things like intentionally carve out time to honor the gifts of diverse communities. And, you know, there's a book I read recently called, oh, shoot, I just blanked on the name of it. Um, sorry, there's a book I recently read, and I'm blanking on the name of the book, by Leah Lakshmi Pipsna Samara Sinha um, about disability justice. And one of the things they said in that book that has stuck with me is, we often think about including people with disabilities as what are their access needs? What do we have to do to change the physical landscape? But we still approach it as if it's a burden. And they said they think it is important in social justice movement spaces, but I think it applies also to workspaces. How do we shift our attitudes so that we recognize the time we spend driving someone with a disability to a march um, as add value for us, the people who are doing the driving, to recognize the gifts that we receive when we prioritize the inclusion of uh, people with disabilities. And I think that's true for all of the inclusion practices. We tend to approach them as it is a good thing to do. It makes us better people. It is the right thing to do. But we do tend to approach them as a burden instead of thinking, how does the act itself actually enrich me? Um, and I think that that's a really important culture shift we can make organizationally as well as individually. That's one of the things I like to imagine for the kind of community I want to inhabit. 
Yes, nice. I like that you have included, you know, made it inclusive uh, beyond just humans, um, because mm. you know, um, right now we are in that critical, uh, you know, uh, climate change is a hot topic, yeah. of course, and it is, uh, you know, um, we all need to realize that we are connected just beyond, you know, just humans that without this planet, uh, we're not going to be around. So right. Um, so. Um, uh, I love that. Yeah, and when uh, we change our relationship mm -hmm. to the land, when we start thinking of the land as a neighbor or, as Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about it, as a fellow citizen, that can change the way we engage the land. And then it also changes the way we engage each other in really beautiful ways and ways that are enriching to our lives. Yes, it, definitely. Um, and now I wanted to talk about you have written a lot of books, <laughs> a number of books. And so um, I, I'd like to believe that um, each author has their favorite book <laughs> that they like. Um, uh, so can you tell me which uh, book of yours is your favorite and why? You know, it's funny, a friend of mine was, exp they all feel so random to me, but a friend of mine was like, no, they create an arc. Um, your publisher should sell them as a bundle because the first book was about the history of people of color in my denomination um, because those stories were not being told. We were acting as if the only history that had happened was white. The second book is a collection of stories of people from lots of different races uh, and cultural backgrounds and how they navigate the complexity of race and racism in the United States. And I put those stories in conversation with stories from the Bible. Um, the third book, as I mentioned, Transforming Communities, is really kind of a guidebook for how to affect change in your local community and giving folks all the tools they need to do that. The fourth book is actually a daily devotional written as if it is a collection of love notes from God. I wrote that because most devotionals aren't written for people of color, for queer people, for progressive people, for um, people who are committed to social justice. And I thought we deserved some spiritual encouragement as well. And then my most recent book, the one that I am currently the most fired up about, is uh, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free, which in some ways is my love letter to uh, activists and organizers. And also my hope is that it gives people the encouragement they need to stay engaged in the work of justice, because I think part of our calling as human beings is to be the ancestors our descendants will need one day. So that's the one that I'm particularly passionate about right now because I think we need all the tools we can get to stay engaged in the work in this moment. And to me, connecting with ancestors who often we have not been encouraged to connect with um, can be a really amazing resource for that work. Yes. Yes, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't read all of your books, but I was, um, but I do uh, agree that they should be a bundle because I could, I could see that there was a the pro uh, progression. It was kind of like taking you through, um, uh, you know, um, your interpersonal development and seeing yeah. the world in, you know, a, a bigger perspective. Because one thing I've realized about a lot of people is that they live in boxes, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, there's a saying, don't be a square, but like people literally live in, in, in boxes in their mind. And they, you know, um, 
aren't willing to try like new things, even the simple things like step out of their uh, box to try a different food to, you know, uh, to even travel. Like there's a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm a, a weird fish out of water, but I started to notice that most people live in a box of fear. Mm. And, and, you know, um, and this box of fear is like, you know, consuming them and they're in, in, that's like I think the the biggest thing that I've 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 personally seen and started like you know when I take people like oh you know let's go to this restaurant they're like I don't know you know I you know they they want to stick to their same their same food or okay let's you know not everybody of course I'm I'm a little bit adventurous and I you know I went skydiving and everybody's like oh my gosh you're like crazy to jump out of a plane I'm like actually when you when I actually did it it was totally different than you think it is and and wow. that is. I believe like, you know, teaches people. So sometimes what you perceive something to be, and then you actually go into it or do it, you learn that it's actually totally different than you ever thought it was. And, um, and I think you learn so much about yourself, but yes. like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a different type of fish as I've been, <laughs> as I've been told, because I'm, you know, willing to go on these adventures because I love learning and I love life because, you know, you only get to do this once, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe if you get recarded, but you don't come back as the same person or thing or right. whatever. Um, right. So each time you get to go on this journey, live it up. <laughs> That's what I believe. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Make the most of it. I completely agree. <laughs> yes. And so with that, what would you say in this um, decade, what is this decade so far? I know we're just at the, um, you know, 2023, but it feels like it's been some, it feels like it's been some years. <laughs> That's no joke. Um, so what would you say? This yeah, we've decade? lived a decade in these past three years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Would you, what would you say that this decade is teaching us so far? I like to think it's teaching us what's important. I think there is a really active campaign uh, by the folks who want to make money to uh, discourage us from leaning into that too heavily. But I think um, I think it's about perspective taking. I think it's about people saying, is this worth it? Um, is this pouring out of uh, my blood, sweat and tears for a corporation that does not value me? Is it worth it? Are there other ways I could put food on the table? Um, I think it's uh, asking the question, do I need all of this stuff or could I reprioritize? So I'm investing in others. Um, I think it's about um, people saying, I feel really disconnected from the land uh, and I want to figure out how to reconnect to it. Um, I think it's about people prioritizing relationships or prioritizing their own emotional and mental health. Um and I think um, there's a song by Toshi Regan uh, uh, that's called There's a New World Coming. And, uh, and it casts this beautiful vision uh, of what the world could be like. Um, and then the chorus is, there's a new world coming. Where are you going to be standing when it comes? And I think there is a growing awareness among a lot of folks, a lot of us who are just regular folks, that this is a moment for change. And 
What is it that matters to us? How are we going to make sure that that gets prioritized? And I think that's really exciting. Um, I think Occupy uh, was a precursor of it. I think um, BLM was a precursor of it. I think the youth-led eco-justice movement, people like uh, Greta Thunberg, but also the water protectors among the indigenous leaders, both elders and youth, um, at the Dakota Pipeline, but also at Line 3 in Minnesota. I think those are all indicators of those shifts, and they're pretty exciting. Yes, I'm excited, too, um, to see what this uh, new world unfolds to be. And it's nice to see that um, people are starting to show their hearts and minds more. Yeah. Um, so totally excited about um, what the future brings. Even, uh, you know, I know it's going to be tough. I know it's going to be rocky and it's going to make us, uh, you know, want to cry sometimes. But um, <laughs> as they say, you know, um, you learn the most through pain. So, yes, that's so true. Um, so, um, thank you, uh, Shonda, for your time and insight. If you'd like to know more about Miss um, Jaw, please go to shondajaw.com. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. In May 2023, we will be having our first annual Changemaker Conference. Register now to attend at www.changemakerconference.com. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 